0: like I, hold your head up high, till you find the blue bird of happiness, you will find greater peace of mind, knowing there's a blue bird of happiness, Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I will be continuing my examination of Dick's 1962 novel, The Man in the High Castle. This is my fifth episode in this series on The Man in the High Castle. So if you are just jumping in at this point and you're not that familiar with the book or you're not that familiar with my perspective and my points of view on this book, you might want to go back and listen to the first four episodes of this series. It won't take you that long, but it'll get you up to date at, you know, up to this point of the novel. In fact, much of the plot is, is pretty well established. We're, we're over halfway through this book, and really it's, it's getting to the point where Dick is starting to resolve his, his major plot lines. And as I said in these, in my other episodes on this book, it's not the most plot heavy of Dick's novels. It's really more of a of an experiment and a, and a an idea that gets applied to a certain setting. And that setting is, of course, a, a world in which the Axis won the Second World War in which much of the United States is occupied by the Japanese. And so American people live in a colonial setting where they're dominated by the Japanese. Now there's also references to the German side of the American occupation which is kind of the eastern part of the U.S. although we just get kind of hints about what life is like there and although we do have some German characters they're active in in the west coast so we're kind of getting things really from this Japanese perspective which is or this American perspective living under Japanese rule. And Japanese rule is fairly uh, kind and Benevolent compared to what we learn of how the Germans run and and a lot of the book focuses on the different attitudes between the Germans and the Japanese but also as we get more towards the middle of the novel we start to get suggestions of how this world that was created by the German and Japanese victory would have contrasted with a world created by an allied victory and the way we get this is through a book called The Grasshopper Lies Heavy which is a fiction book written in this world by a guy named Aberson, who lives in Cheyenne Wyoming in a home he calls the High Castle so he's kind of hiding out from from mostly the Germans who want to suppress him. The Japanese really aren't that willing to execute him or kill him for writing this book, even though the book is pretty much banned across the United States. Our main characters are uh the uh, a married couple broken up, Juliana Frank, who's shacking up with an Italian man named Joe in around Denver in Colorado, and her husband Frank Frank, who's now he's a what he was born a Jew, but he's been hiding his identity, so which is pretty much something Jews have to do in this in this world in which the Nazis have won. Not only have they eradicated the Jews of Europe, but they went to other races and other groups, the Slavs and the Africans, and they've been since that point just projecting themselves into space kind of wildly. So Frank had to kind of hide his identity, but he's just lost his job, and he tried to get started start a business making jewelry. And making authentic real jewelry. There's other characters too, and I'll I'll mention some and maybe get you up to speed if you if you insist on just joining us at this point. But I, I really do think you sh- you need to go back and at least read the first part of the novel or, or or say listen to what I say about the early part of the novel and the earlier episodes. Now the major theme of this story, though the characters aside and the plot aside, the major theme of this novel is about what is real and how can we know what is real and what is the relationship between things kind of essence and their historicity where things fit in history and you know basically how can we know things are real or not and kind of the meta way this manifests is the question is, is this world in which the axis is when real or is it really a kind of a, a true reality underneath that reflected in books like the grasshopper lives heavy and of course then we can kind of reflect on this ourselves is the man in the high castle Kind of seen through a veil of of lies, but then there's a lot of little examples throughout the book uh, of, of false fronts of people on putting on masks, people taking identities that aren't authentic. You know, and one of the most popular industries in the western coast of the United States are because the Japanese like it is the collection and yeah, you know, basically collecting American historical artifacts in kitschy little devices from the previous centuries and our antiques and that kind of thing but these are all easily faked and a lot of the subplots in this novel revolve around fake antiques and how they contrast to real original items and and kind of what's more valuable to us Uh, a fake antique that has kind of the aura of history even though it's not real or a real true you know invention of someone's creative mind so that's played with in many different ways throughout the novel. In fact, almost no one, no character is fully what they seem at all times. Even characters who don't kind of fake their identity, you know, put on different faces and, and and kind of give white lies to each other, especially the people living kind of under Japanese rule who have to kind of pretend to be part of this system, even though they might resent it. We have people with backgrounds that they can't be honest about because of the nature of the nazi and japanese rule we have we have people just putting on fake faces you know to complete their jobs or to complete their tasks you know they might be because they're doing they're a spy and they have a task to perform so there's all kinds of examples of people and things not being what they seem and it all kind of feeds into this kind of meta-narrative about reality and i think this is a, a very different novel than some of dick's earlier works on what is real you know, if you go back to like, the Cosmic Puppets, or Time of the Joint, or Eye in the Sky, those are novels about what is real. But there's there's always a reason something is what it's seen, and we're very clear on what is the true reality and what's being experienced. Dick throws that out in The Man in the High Castle and just comes to the conclusion that what is, we can't really know what is real. There's really no. Foundation and the metaphor for this is the two antiques. So he, at one point, a character gives two Zippo's and says they look exactly the like, but one was in Roosevelt's pocket when he was assassinated. I think it was in 1933 in the in the book that he was assassinated, and another is just a fake. How do you know? They both have the same kind of historicity, but one has a piece of paper that authenticates it. It is real, right? And now how do you believe that? So there's a lot of doubt cast on whether anything can be. Really, truly defined as, as real and so there's a bit of pessimism about the kind of the metaphysics of of reality in this novel now in the part of the novel we're going to look at now it's going to be chapters 11 and 12 maybe 13 probably just 11 and 12 and i'll, I'll finish it up in the final episode of this series it's it's a little bit more plot heavy where we're kind of, you know, Dick really needs to start completing some of the plot lines he's he's began. Um, the central tension in this novel is is a kind of a political one, and it's about the German transition. The German leader, a man named Bormann, had just died, and now there's a power struggle within Germany, and there's different factions within Germany that different have different goals for for. The future of of the world and the future of the alliance between Germany and Japan. Now, to help talk about this is a German officer, a German agent who's undercover, but he wants to inform for his boss on the German or on the uh, to the Japanese government what the Germans are planning to do, and basically encouraging them to support one side versus the other in in the secession, or at the very least to warn them about what's coming. So as chapter 11 opens, we're with the Reich's Council in San Francisco, a man named Hugo Rees, and he's basically in the pocket of of Goebbels, who is one of the factions who's striving for power. I think it was Goebbels, Gehring, uh, Rudolf, uh, or Reinhard, Heydrich, and a couple other people. And I looked them all up. They're all real historical figures, but there's like five major contenders for power after, after the death of this man, Bormann. And so... Rice is basically, you know, he's just a council, right? Now, actually, there's kind of a running joke in this book. It only comes up a few times, but that running joke is that he's got all these big, important political decisions and heavy decisions to make about what to do with spies and and who to back and the succession and, and whose orders to take and all that at the same time, he's got to deal with all these petty counselor duties that kind of get in the way. Like, you know, he's got photo ops and he's got to deal with sail you know, sailors who got off a boat and need to check in. So there's a little bit of that with this character. So there's some, a little bit of humor in this book, not that much, but there's a bit of humor in this book. And one of the places you have it is in this character, um, rice. Now he's told that this man, Baines, Baines, is a character we've met earlier in the novel he's coming as a swedish businessman to help negotiate the transfer of like plastics technology to to japan or to the japanese sector and i think the symbolism of plastics in a novel all about fakeness and reality is significant but he's actually an agent of within the german government for a faction in the german government and he's informing on the Germans and what some of the plans of some of the other factions in the German government are to the Japanese and he's been found out. So it's, it's revealed that his name is Rudolf Wagner and he so right Re- Rice gets this call from this man um, from basically the you know the the Gestapo named Kreitz von mir and he's telling Rice that you got to get this guy get him back to Germany and the plan is essentially to group together, I think it's five, five good men uh, who will hide as violinists and then attack, assault the Nippon Times, which is where this Japanese head, Togomi, this Japanese is kind of official, Togomi works and where Baines is, is meeting with him. He's a bit hesitant to do this because, you know, he's got a sensitive role as a council, and he has to worry about the politics of everything. And... Just as he's hesitating, he gets a call from Goebbels, Dr. Goebbels, who tells him that, that you know, basically you have to do what this man is saying. And, and Goebbels even says that I got the call from General Heydrich. Heydrich, Reinhard Heydrich, is one of the other contenders for the throne after this death of Bormann. And we're going to find out later on that Goebbels and him are actually on opposite sides. So that seems to be a lie. But in any case, he's told, he's bringing direct orders that you're to cooperate with the police in regards to collecting this wagoner and returning him to Germany. So then as counsel, he signs the orders uh, and starts to get the plan how to get him from the Japanese. And then at the end of the, this section about rice, he gets this, um, you know, the, he this, this busy counselor work that he used to do. It's like a school teacher who wants pictures of Austria or something that, that, that he has to take care of so again that's that's kind of the humorous subtext of of this particular character is just that he's really a middle management kind of guy who's thrown in the middle of of all these massive politics and all these big decisions be put on him because he's the rex counselor but he's not the rex counsel but he's not that important of the figure he's basically a mid lane type of person the kind of people that dick often writes about and has a lot of sympathy for in in much of his work and then Dick throws a little point in here as 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 Hugo Reese thinks about his situation that actually he has some power and this is another thing that Dick believes is that despite being a bit exploited and not appreciated, not fully understood, and you know just often stepped on by higher ups, these middle management types have a lot of power and authority and, and can actually mess up a lot of plans if they put their minds to it. Quote: In fact, he thought it might be worth seeing how a little foot dragging here and there could possibly stall your activities here police viewer. Something negative that could never be pinned down. For instance, when the Japanese come in here to complain, I might manage to drop a hint as to the Lufthansa flight on which this fellow is to be dragged away, or barring that, needle them into a bit more outrage by, say, just a trace of a compunctuous smirk, suggesting that the Reich is amused by them. Doesn't take little yellow man seriously. It's it's easy to sting them, and if they get angry enough, they might even carry it directly to Garibald's. End quote so that that's a nice addition and we're not going to see too much of of rice and the rest of the novel if, if, if at all but you know I, I think this these characters in the middle of organizations who don't get seen as powerful dick thinks do have a lot of authority and, and actually can mess things up if they choose to and we've seen this in other works of his like the man who japed for instance or um, The world Jones made had a bit of that, but you know, in other works, he's, he studied this, this class of character and he's going to do it more and more in the 1960s as he writes his, his great um, swath of novels from 1962 to 1970. So after this, we are reintroduced to our antique salesman, Childen. Now Childen had just gotten a bunch of jewelry from Frank Frink and the new business he started. And they're all original pieces. He used to selling antiques and replicas and and old historical kitschy things. But so these are kind of new, these original jewelry. And he kind of liked them, but he takes he only buys, accepts them on consignment, so he doesn't really take any risk. And in fact, he steals one almost instantly, takes one and and sends it to a Japanese couple that he's very interested in. He's got the hots for the young woman in that couple. And but more so he's he's fascinated that this young, upwardly mobile Japanese couple kind of likes him and has befriended him and likes his merchandise and you know he's got business interests in them but even more he, he sees them as a way to you know uplift himself politically and socially in you know in this world dominated by the Japanese and he very much is a bit Uncle Tom-ish to, can't, I can't think of a better word to, to, to say but he's a bit Uncle Tomish in how he deals with this um, Karasura family it's, it's Paul is the man's name and he goes to his office. Basically, he he's, wants to follow up on this gift he gave to his wife, Kara sewer's wife, of one of these pieces of jewelry. Now, instantly, he he thinks right away when he starts the conversation, he's got this kind of shameful attitude about himself. He says, oh, the, the piece must have offended your wife. I'm so sorry. I'll get you something new, something better. or something." But actually, Paul says how fascinated he was by the piece. And how kind of wonderful it was and interesting it was so he says this she was not disappointed robert i did not give the piece of jewelry to her it has not left this office so he actually has been kind of staring at and studying it for all this time continuing on he said i took the liberty of showing this to a number of business acquaintances individuals who share my taste for american historical objects or for artifacts of general artistic aesthetic merit none of course have ever seen anything like this as you explain, no such contemporary work hitherto has been known. I think, too, you inform that you are the sole representative. And what, we, what Childen learns is that the people that this man showed this piece to were all, also fascinated and entranced with this work. And he goes on to praise this thing for actually a couple pages. He says... I for several days now inspected it, and for no logical reason, I feel a certain emotional fondness. Why is that, I may ask? I, I do not even now project this blob as a psychological German test of my own psyche. I still see no shapes or forms, but it somehow partakes of tau. You see? It is balanced. The forces within this piece are stabilized, at rest. So to speak, this object has made its peace with the universe. It has separated from it and hence has managed to come to homeostasis. Now, I, I'm not actually sure which Wu it's referring to. Um, the one I I think it means is, is, a, is a Chinese word or Chinese character Wu that, that basically refers to reality or things, objects, having substance, right? So that's basically the heart of it. And here's how a, a f, I think it's the Stanford uh entry the the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy their entry on maybe it's on Mozi or maybe it's on Chinese philosophy in general so it says this thus with the exception of the Moist school which elaborated some divisions regarding the problem of things as they are sure and things as they appear ran the heart mind as an inherent organ of perception was seen as contiguously integrated with the phenomenon of the external world that manifested themselves in the notion of thing events so that's a hyphenated word, things, events, and that's what's referred to as, that's Wu. Hence, instead of establishing a clear demarcation line between the subject and the object of comprehension, human perception and recognition of reality were mostly seen as the products of a stru- of the coherent, structured, orderly, complementary interaction between the heart, mind, and the things events. This continuity of internal and external worlds prevailed in classical Chinese epistemology until the 11th century. All right. So what, how to make sense of this in the context of this novel. Well, Paul here is praising for it having woo, basically having this essence, but it doesn't have meaning, right? So it's it doesn't have both of these things. So as, you know, things have both material and and kind of, enti- like, uh, what's the word? I think it's principle, yeah. It has principle and matter, right? And th- this kind of comes out of, neo-confucianism but it, it doesn't um paul this japanese uh young businessman says it doesn't have i guess principle it just has it's just being it's just like pure being pure s or pure material force but he also says it does not it doesn't have this piece of jewelry it doesn't have a japanese philosophical concept of wabi which you might know from this when sometimes people talk about Japanese aesthetics, they talk about wabi-sabi as it. And I don't know as much about that. Actually, it's been a while since I studied any of this East Asian philosophy. But wabi is kind of this is simplicity. And sabi is more about things being old and kind of passing through time. But he focuses, he says wabi here and he doesn't have the sabi part of it. So that just means kind of simplicity. And he says it doesn't have that, but it has woo. So it's a bit hard to break down and the conversation doesn't actually help. At one point, Childen thinks the woo is wisdom or comprehension. Quote, um, you know, this is quoting Paul again. He says, in the hands of an artificer, The hands of the artist had woo, and I'll allow that woo to flow into this piece. Possibly he himself knows only that this piece satisfied. It is complete, Robert. By contemplating it, we gain more woo ourselves. We experience the tranquility associated with not with the art, not with art, but with holy things. I recall a shining Hiroshima wherein a shin bone of some medieval saint could be examined. However, this was an artifact, and that was a relic. This is alive in the now, whereas that merely remained. By this meditation, conducted by myself at great length since you were last here, I have come to identify this object which has in its opposition to historicity. I am deeply moved, as you can see. To have no historicity, and also no artistic aesthetic worth, and yet to partake in some ethereal value, this is a marvel. Just precisely because this is a miserable, small, worthless-looking blob, that robber contributes to it possessing woo. Four, it is a fact that Wu is customarily found in least imposing places, as the Christian aphorism stones rejected by the builder. One experiences awareness of Wu in such trash as an old stick or a rusty can on the side of the road. However, in these cases, the Wu is in the viewer. It is a religious experience. Here, the artificer has put Wu into the object rather than merely witness the Wu inherent in it. Okay, so that's that's how he's praising this object philosophically, that there's some Kind of material force in it that's been given into it that's not just there because we experience it and we see it kind of in the in the regular old junk of life. Now what he's contrasting it to is things having history and a place and a true aesthetic value, which is what the Japanese are really obsessed with about. And that's why they're interested in these American antiques and and old you know old kitschy things. They They were after that historicity, and this is something very different. So it's a very new experience for, for Paul. And that's why he's so fascinated by it and, and praising it. But then Paul kind of changes the conversation subtly, subtly from the value of this piece of jewelry, which is actually kind of flattering for, for children. He's going to take, of course, credit for finding this jewelry, even though it just kind of fell into his lap through the Ed Frank jewelry company that's just been established. He's going to take credit for it but paul goes farther and, and and kind of changes the subject to like profiting from it and he says basically i know people who can market this and if you can mass produce it if you can make a lot of them like this make them cheap you know maybe make hundreds of thousands of them or tens of maybe i think it's a tens of thousands of them we can sell them in japan make them out of cheap metal or plastic and we can sell them to as good luck charms to kind of the uneducated Japanese masses and children actually confronts him and says, well, then how can it have, how can it still have this woo if it's just another mass produced trinket? And Paul doesn't really answer that. So everything he was saying up to this point, praising it kind of as a philosophical uniqueness gives way to a much more base commercial reality that he's interested in at the end. so he's not really in a sense, it's, about the money at the end for, for Paul and the previous part of the conversation was, was that just flattery? Was that just trying to to rope him in? Is he just a very good salesperson? You know, I think that's, that's part of it. So we're meant to be deceived a little bit. Uh, I think Dick meant to deceive us a little bit uh, by, by kind of saying there's something really here. There's something, a real interesting philosophical concept here. And then he kind of rips it away from us by the by the end of the section. And we're told that this is just going to end up being another commodity mass produced and mass sold. And, you know, it'll just, you know, to, sold to uh, a consuming public. And we see here much of Dick's anxiety and, and dislike for the, the, the kind of banal consumerism he must have saw all around him in in the 1950s. Now, how does Paul eventually is is he's a bit confronted on this by children who thinks, well, it doesn't just undermine what you've been saying about this item all along? And Paul says, Well, you know, don't underestimate the uneducated masses. They'll find value in this, right? And there's just so many uneducated, they'll find value in it. Quote, they can obtain from mold produced identical objects a joy which would be denied to us. We must suppose that we have the only one of a kind or at very least something rare possessed by very few. And of course, something truly authentic, not a model or a replica, not something cast by the tens of thousands, end quote. But he says, you know, the, the mass consumed item, it's, it's valuable to them, right? They, they, they'll appreciate it in their own kind of vulgar way. But, but we'll, we'll hold on to the, the true original creative items. And now, and at this point, Childen does something. Pretty amazing for its character. For a character who's been basically bootlicking the Japanese really from the beginning, doing what the Japanese say, not really expressing himself very confidently, especially in respect to the Japanese, actually stands up for American craftsmanship and says, like, no, you're vulgarizing my culture. This is something that our craftspeople have created, and I'm not going to let it just be bastardized and turned into a vulgar uh, consumer good and first he thinks it's doing his head children thinks to himself of course whole affair of cruel dismissal of american efforts taking place before his eyes cynicism but god forbid he had swallowed hook line and sinker got me to agree step by step led me along the garden path to this conclusion products of american hands good for nothing but to be models for junky good luck charms this is how the japanese ruled not crude crudely but with subtlety ingenuity timeless cunning christ we're barbarians to them children realize we're no more than boobs against such pitiable reasoning paul did not say this did not tell me that our art was worthless he got me to say it for him and as a final irony he he regretted my utterance faint civilized gesture of sorrow as he heard the truth out as he heard the truth out of me and so then he rejects this and he does so by defending the pride of american artists like this man frank who had actually been involved early in the novel in an effort to, to you know basically undermine his business in an effort to to scam his own boss but you know in the end of the day children ends up having to defend the pride and honor of frank frank um, so it that these characters come together in this way having met only once under false Pretences early in their story I think it's kind of really nice uh, way for these character stories to wrap up and and we get a character who's so weak and on his back for so much of the novel to finally stand up for for himself and stand up for his people and and assert a kind of moral independence uh, based on creativity and the creativity of American artists. Is a pretty outstanding moment and really one of the high points of the novel, it seems to me. So, in chapter 12, we finally get this meeting that we've been re- referred to for most of the book at this point, where it's this Japanese official Tagomi with this man who just arrived from Japan, Yatabe, with Baines, who we learned in the previous chapters actually named wagner who's a, well, he's he works, he was of the German bureaucracy, but actually he, he says he's Swiss um so let me just jump to it uh baines w- wagner i'll probably mix them up but he'd probably be called Wagner at this point in the story tells his these japanese officials that that this succession in germany is a very bad news for the japanese he works for reinhardt Heydrich, and he's in that faction and and, you, and he basically tells the Japanese you're going to want him to, to rule. And the reason why is Ger, Goebbels' faction has a plan, and they support a plan that's been kind of worked out, but hadn't been implemented yet because Borman opposed it, and the, the people who supported it weren't fully in power. But the plan was essentially to sneak attack Japan, conquer the western part of the United States, and then nuke the home islands of Japan and wagner's job here is basically to warn the japanese of it and hope that they can forestall prevent this maybe in some way and he thinks that the succession of of reinhardt heinrich will help ensure that and then as they have this conversation they get the news that the sd the gestapo essentially is attacking the nippon times in an effort to claim wagner and, and send him back to germany and this was the Operation that was being talked about earlier in the chapter, of, in the previous chapter about Reese. Now, interestingly, Tagomi pulls out a, a, a per, quote: "Perfectly preserved U.S. 1960 Civil War Colt 44, a treasured collector's item." Now, these were the exact same items that were talked about earlier in the novel, which were proven to be fakes. Right? We're going to find out later on that Tagomi had actually bought it from Children's Store, where. These fakes were identified. So he thinks this is a real Civil War Colt 44. And it could be. It really does shoot. So it, it works. But if it's a fake or not, we don't we can't really know. And I, I think the suggestion is that maybe it is a fake, but he pulls it out and it's called, you know, a perfectly preserved US nineteen sixty, a treasured collector's item. So from Tagomi's point of view, it is a real pistol. A real I guess a revolver. The assault on the Nippon Times ends up proving a failure and Togomi is responsible for the death of some of these German officials and then he has kind of a crisis a moral crisis where he realizes to save one life that of Baines or or Wagner he had to kill two lives He he had to remove two lives but he starts to have deeper even philosophical anxiety about the nature of German rule even the way the world works and You know, he kind of starts to represent the feeling we have reading this novel, this feeling that everything around us is a little is fake or out of of line with reality. Quote, he wondered if in this instant the oracle would be of any use. Perhaps it could protect them, warn them, shield them with its advice. Still quite shaky, he began taking out the 49 yarrow stalks. Whole situation confusing and anomalous, he decided. No human intelligence could decipher it. Only 5,000-year-old joint mind application. German totalitarian society resembles some faulty form of life. Worse than natural things. Worse in all its admixtures, its potpourri of pointlessness. Here, he thought, local SD acts as instrumental policy, totally at odds with in Berlin. Where is the composite being in this sense? Who really is Germany? Whoever was, almost like decomposing nightmare parody of problems customarily faced in course of existence. The oracle will cut through this. Even weird breed of cat like Nazi Germany comprehensible to I Ching, end quote. So he kind of gives up on being able to decipher reality from his objective standpoint. And he decides only the I Ching can be the, can be the way to get through that to allow him to make actual conclusions about the world and his place in it and his role in it and so that's that's the assault on on the nippon times now also in chapter 12 we have a little a few pages about what's been going on with frank frank he's in his basement workshop trying to you know be optim somewhat optimistic about the future of his business but there's not much to be too happy about they haven't been making any sales the only thing they had was that consignment Dropping stuff off for consignment at Children's Store, and they went to a bunch of stores and couldn't really sell anything. And they're not making money. They sold, they literally sold nothing except for consignment. They had, um and they visited these five retail stores. So Frank basically chickens out at this point and realizes he's going to have to escape this business. And he asks Ed McCarthy, his business partner, to buy him out for, for I think it's like six hundred dollars, which is actually less than half for the value of. Of the business, McCarthy eventually convinces him to maybe sit on it a few days to let him, you know, try a few more stores. But Frank's not optimistic that the business is going to, you know, have much of a future. In a sense, it doesn't really matter because after that conversation, he there's a knock on the door and it turns out to be the San Francisco Police Department with a warrant for his arrest. And he's being arrested. He's being arrested for Bunko for the scam he pulled on Mr. Chilton earlier. And if you did not listen, I think that's in episode two where I talk about this. Basically, he, he entered the store, identified these, looked at these pistols, these Colt 44s, declared them fakes. He knows they're fakes because he made them uh, when he worked for the, store, the factory he used to work at. He did this not to screw over Chilton, but really to blackmail his boss for some cash that he could use to start up this uh, business he gets arrested for this he's also identified as a jew which doesn't bode well for his his future even in the japanese part of occupied america and he he's taken off to jail so that it doesn't quite end his storyline there's a little bit to talk about how he ends up in the next episode but um, it certainly Starts to bring to a close his his plotline. So that does it for chapters eleven and twelve of of the Man in the High Castle. We still have three chapters to deal with, and and we have to visit all most of our characters again to see where they end up in the story. Um, but you know we're we're almost to the end of this tale, so I'll have one more episode where I'll cover that, and I'll try to give some thematic closure to this novel i i'm I'm not going to maybe approach it with a kind of a clear philosophical argument of what dick was trying to say but i do want to approach it thematically and talk about it thematically and and see what you know what how we can apply this work to you know comparing how this these themes are explored in other works by philip dick or other works of 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 american literature so i'm going to leave it at that for now thank you so much for listening to this podcast if you know and i'm sure in a work like this i've missed a lot or I misinterpret a lot or I'm reading it wrong from your point of view. So if you have those feelings, please leave me an email at 100 gmail.com. I would love very much to hear from you or you can just leave a comment below and I will try to respond. So again, thanks for listening. I'll be back next time with my finale of my review and my comments of, of The Man in the High Castle. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.